Free Britney. From Fort Worth, Texas, this is Stranger Than Christian. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to another episode of Stranger Than Christian. My name is Christian Carrion. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I'm doing it. I'm proving it to myself. I'm working full time again. I just got off of work and I'm editing an episode and recording an intro and uploading the thing. One of my biggest fears over the past year or so while I've been either unemployed or working remotely was that when I do go back to work, which by the way, I'm a hotel manager again. I I am so happy to be doing that. Um, I didn't realize how much I missed it. Ah, I forgot to turn my alarm off. God damn it. Sorry. Anyway, I'm so happy to be able to do this and to prove to myself my own strength and to show myself that it's possible to pursue a creative interest and have a full-time out-of-the-house job at the same time. So a uh, personal achievement for me, and I'm happy to be sharing it with you. My guest today is Thomas. Thomas is a college professor in Fort Worth, Texas, and he studies the psychology of human sexuality as well as the psychology of death and dying and grief. And when you're having a conversation about such sensitive subjects, it almost by default enables the two participants to be open and honest. And so I had a lot of questions that I wanted answered by somebody who knew what they were talking about. He had a lot of things to share about death and about sex and about any number of things in between. It was really, really fascinating talking to Thomas, and I think you're going to be equally fascinated. Also... Thomas dabbles in tarot, in tarot reading, and before this episode, it was not an experience that I had had any insight into. I've never experienced a tarot reading before, so I'm grateful to Thomas for enabling me to engage in that life experience. I really think you're going to love this episode, and I am so excited for you to hear it, and I'm so grateful that you're listening to it. Facebook at Stranger Than Christian, Instagram at Stranger Than Christian, Twitter at Stranger Than C, and Patreon.com slash Stranger Than Christian. The patrons who are subscribing are loving the episodes of Mr. Fred's Palette, my dad's art instructional public access show that I used to direct back in the day, back in the day being early to mid-2000s. Um, it was a lot of fun to make, and I'm having a lot of fun sharing it. So any subscriber on my Patreon gets weekly access to episodes that I'm pulling randomly from the archive of six years, hundreds of shows. I'm just putting them up one at a time, and I hope you join those who are enjoying those. Patreon.com slash Stranger Than Christian. Any support appreciated. Thank you very much. I will be back with that conversation with Thomas from Fort Worth, Texas in just a minute. But first, here is a word of interest about a phenomenal program on the Apocalypse Podcast Network. You're listening to Stranger Than Christian. Stay right there. Hot Gossip Trash Comedy is the podcast where we trade sweet, sweet facts like they're dirty little pieces of gossip. 
We're a New York-based comedy team, and we're joined each week with a funny, delightful friend. After each person shares their facts, we read those facts from. Oh my God, that's not hot. That's as cold as the coldest ice you've ever seen. To. Oh my God, that's so spicy. My mouth is gone. So if that made sense to you, then please join us on Mondays wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Thomas? Hello. Hey, are you there? I'm here. Oh, hey, how are you? Doing well, how are you? Good. My rule is I wait for the guest to say hi first, and if it gets to be a minute and they don't say anything, then I say hi. I don't know why I've developed this rule. I think I just like to get that, like, hello to start, but some, but sometimes people don't do that, so then I jump in. So that mm. was me waiting for you to say hello, but you did nothing wrong. Everything is fine. Oh, right on. No, usually... So in at least in my context, when I'm doing like Zoom meetings and stuff, if the other person's camera's off, I'm like, they're probably not even there. Like, it's just up. They're off getting a drink. That's true. And you know what? I developed that rule for myself before I learned like workplace Zoom etiquette because I hadn't been working remote yet. So I realized that, yes, it probably does sound like there's some sort of technical issue that's preventing us from hearing each other. Oh, yeah. I wasn't worried about that. I just thought that you were getting prepped or whatever i don't know <laughs> no it's all good how was your day tell me about your day i'm doing very well uh considering i had a rough night's sleep but it's been rather productive um this is i believe the second podcast yeah the second one i've done today where i've guested i did that one this morning and then i've spent the rest of the day writing um so it's been chatting and then sitting alone very quietly and typing away and now i'm back to being social how did that first podcast go it went really well um it's uh called by podcasters for podcasters and essentially it's just a uh platform where the guy talks about people's different approaches to podcasting and the technology they use and how they got into it and it's kind of a uh central hub for people who may be interested in getting into podcasting or perhaps, you know, want to improve what they're doing. So it was fun to get on and kind of talk about my journey through this, you know, mode. Um, but it was very quick. It was like 30 minutes. So we had a good chat. It's nice, though. It's healthy to talk to other people who are doing this because I don't know how long you've been looking to get into podcasting, but it's been a couple of years for me. And there are some days that in this hobby are lonelier than others. And it's nice to talk to other people and realize that they're doing it the same way you're doing it. And maybe maybe they're doing it a different way. And you get to learn about their process and about, you know, how how they're set up. Um, it, it's nice to not feel so alone in this, which is very possible sometimes. Mm -hmm. No, and I really appreciate. So one of the things about podcasting that I enjoy is that uh, it is such a disintermediated platform. So like if you do a YouTube channel, then the algorithm essentially like shepherds you into a collective and then you get, you know, put on a circle and a cycle with other people who do similar stuff than you really without a lot of choice on your end. But with podcasting, you have to be very intentional and proactive um, because you don't really have the benefit of the system to push you into pre-existing demographics, essentially. 
that must be what I'm doing wrong because I I feel like I cannot understand how a podcast gets popular. And I just talked about it uh, about a week ago with my last uh, the last person that I talked to, and I just can't figure that out. I just mm-hmm. can't figure out how you know without a massive social media push or without you know extensive marketing efforts like how a podcast gets popular Hmm. yeah no the system is definitely working against podcasting because it is oversaturated um and you so don't what the have... hell are we doing here man i just do this for fun like I <laughs> no can't i seem... do too <laughs> <laughs> you my day job is a uh well, I'm, I'm about to be a professor, but my day job was being a graduate teacher. And so, you know, I had a captive audience to listen to me ramble for an hour a day. And so when COVID shut everything down, I was like, I still need to talk, though. <laughs> right. Well, that and that was my situation. Exactly. I was working in hospitality and I got laid off. And mm. that was a big part of why I got into it. I, I, always, I had always wanted to work in broadcasting. That was like that's been my goal since I was this high. And. I got into hospitality because I was able to meet all these people and talk to these people and engage with people. And yeah, when I got laid off, that was the biggest thing missing for my life. I was like, who am I going to talk to? And that's kind of how this started. Mm-hmm. But podcasting is good in that way. It's uh, it is a, a, a very healthy social exercise no, if you're doing it right. I definitely agree. Um, and it's also very intimate. So even if you only have, so like, I don't, Honestly, I don't really keep track of the numbers because a lot of my podcast is dedicated to my students um, since we're all online. And so it helps to create that rapport and that relationship because it's such an auxiliary medium. So like they're listening to me lecture about a topic while they're doing dishes or while they're driving or while they're cleaning house or while they're playing a video game, etc. So I'm kind of embedded within their like within their lives and within their lifestyles in a way that's different than just like i'm up here on a stage and i'm talking at you um so it's you know even though i don't get the reciprocation necessarily because obviously they don't have podcasts to like talk back to me um it's not a phone call but knowing that that is how that medium is interacting in their lives is very fulfilling and i'm really happy to be doing it what an incredible tool for a professor to have or any any teacher to be able to bond with their students in such a way. Because mm-hmm. like you said, it, it, it definitely, uh, it, 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 it almost creates this new category, right? You're not just, like you said, a guy in front of a class talking. You're, you're part of the fabric of their day. And mm-hmm. uh, I love that. I think that's so cool. Yeah, no, I've really, that's, I, that's why I always wanted to get into podcasting. But I didn't really have that push until the COVID shutdowns happened. And luckily, I was actually in a course. I was a student in a course about learning technology. So I kind of had a theoretical backbone that I developed in the course in order to start producing uh, content for my students in a way that would be helpful instead of hurtful or distracting. Um, you know, it's not just me rambling. Like, there's a method to the madness. What got you into teaching? Um, it kind of is a byproduct of going to grad school. So I went to grad school because I wanted to study human sexuality. Um, I had some experience, uh, as an undergrad working with one of my current collaborators while she was in grad school on some of her projects about sex research. 
And so when you go to grad school, you obviously start doing research, you start taking your classes, you work on your thesis and dissertation. But one of the ways that you pay the bills and keep a roof over your head is by doing graduate teaching hours. And so that can translate to teaching a lab for a professor or getting your own class. Typically, it's an elective course. So the two that I specialized in was psychology of human sexuality, obviously. And then I also taught the psychology of death and dying. Um, and so they gave me those two courses and I taught those throughout the duration of my program, fell in love with teaching, fell in love with talking to students about ideas, um, exploring new areas of research uh, with them and, you know, getting to foster their own personal growth and, you know, uh, build up their own independent scholarship within those courses was very, very fulfilling and very fun. So I was like, I, I can keep doing this. This is good. I want to keep talking about that, but I'm going to go back for a minute because now knowing what you teach about and what you study and what you research, and I imagine that, again, having a podcast where your students can listen to the information almost at their own pace, because I imagine for some students, there may be some uncomfortable topics presented under those umbrellas. You know what I mean? So to (laughs) be able to... Yeah. So to be able to do that at their own pace and at their own comfort level and do it, you know, what, when and where they are comfortable must present a great advantage for you as, a, as an educator. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. I think that's why both of my courses did so well at the end of spring 2020 after we had switched online because I just moved everything online, started throwing up podcasts once or twice a week for them. And I did not have the attrition or the grade drops that a lot of my peers and people above me were experiencing um, because the podcast was a great medium to transition from like, hey, we're going to talk about blowjobs today and everybody get awkward and quiet to here's a podcast about sexual behavior. And so they were able to consume that and then, you know, use that information within the testing framework. So it was a lot more comfortable for people but i will say people are less uncomfortable about the sex class than they are about the death class i have more walkouts in the death class that's what i imagine because death i feel and and correct me if i'm wrong maybe i'm thinking of this the wrong way but there's a certain reverence to death that a lot of people tend to try to maintain and Mm -hmm. if you don't have that reverence that respect for the concept of death it's very offensive to people is that why they walk out that but also i think it's very personal too so there's this idea and i'm kind of conflicted about this um i should disclose to your listenership that i'm a research psychologist and not a uh clinical psychologist so i'm not a helping i don't help people uh in a clinical sense so i can't really give uh mental health advice but one of the things that draws people to the death class is that they typically have lost a loved one close to them the semester or year before. And they see that class and they think of it as kind of a exposure therapy kind of situation. Um, Not realizing that it's like horribly academic and not personable at all. Um, And so sometimes when like one instance that comes to mind is we were talking about uh, the death of teenagers and there was a mom in the course who had just lost her son like the very semester before And she was in the class because she had gone through that uh, experience and was going through bereavement. Um, But it was just a little too hot to handle for her. So I have a very open door policy when it comes to that class. Like she was, you know, she could feel comfortable standing up and leaving, going outside, 
you know, getting a drink, coming back 20 minutes later, uh, because I'm not going to try to keep anyone trapped in that situation. But usually it's very personal. And some of the research I've been reading shows that people do see improvements in their bereavement if they attend a death and dying course. Um, but it's not the gentlest uh, therapeutic approach, I would say. It's true that everybody grieves differently, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's not a right or wrong way to grieve. And there isn't a right or wrong time frame to grieve either in terms of, like, your, you personally. Now, our society and our culture tells us that there is a specific time or a specific way to grieve. And so you may get external negative factors happening, like people judging you or ostracizing you or telling you to smile or telling you to get over it um, because you don't meet that social expectation. But in terms of just individual psychology, there is no limit to how long or how you grieve. Could I trouble you to tell you a quick story about an, and, and, and an experience relating to me involving grief? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so my father-in-law, my, my wife's dad, passed away uh, about two years ago, so in November of 2019, about a year and a half ago, um, and he died of cancer. He was expected to live another six months without his treatment. He died within the week. And the family came, by, by, uh, so all his family from Long Island came to the house, and, and it, was, it, was, it was quite an experience. And I uh, helped the undertaker carry the body into the car um, oh, because yeah. he, he, was, he, was, he was too old. He couldn't do it. And he just, without thinking, asked me to help. And I, and I helped him. I said, you know what? Yeah, let's do it. Like that, that my improv brain kicked in. I was like, let's yes and this. I'm just going to do it. So everybody had gone through their share of shit that day. And it must have been about 7 o'clock at night. The whole family was still at the house. Everybody just sitting around talking. And my wife's cousin who was 14 years old at the time. Um, I was kind of taking a nap in the living room, well, the other living room, there were two of them. She came into the room and stared right at me and said, I want to go to McDonald's. And my immediate reaction was, yes, let's go to McDonald's. So we got in the car, we went to McDonald's, and while we were in line, before we got to the speaker in the drive-thru, she's, her cousin uh, asked me, can you ask them for one chicken nugget and see if they give you one chicken nugget in a box. And I said, how the hell am I going to do that? And she said, just tell them that you have an infant daughter who won't eat an entire order of chicken nuggets. And you just need one. So we pulled up. And I asked the person at the window for one chicken nugget. Because my daughter won't eat an entire order of chicken nuggets. And my cousin recorded this. This is going to sound weird, but it's for my daughter at home. Is it possible, is it possible to just get one chicken nugget? No. Okay, because I'll pay for it. I mean, I was just for my daughter at home. She doesn't eat. She she won't eat like four. Of them. We'll give you a nugget. We won't charge you for it. Oh, thank you very much. That's excellent. Okay, so <laughs> so it's just a double cheese with only cheese, right? Right. Okay, that'll be two eleven. I'll just single. Thank All right, you. Thank you. <laughs> And it was a lot of fun, and they ended up giving us one chicken nugget. We spent the next three hours driving to different fast food places and asking for ridiculous things. I asked Wendy's for one slice of cheese. I asked Dairy Queen for ice cream with one purple sprinkle on it. And somehow, 
it just made sense to us. That just felt like something we needed to do, maybe to lighten the mood in our own minds or to distract us. But I had never done anything like that before, haven't done anything since. But that's what we did the day my father-in-law died. That's very cute. I really liked that story. What disease do I have? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the one thing that comes to mind is the idea of, what is it? It's Jean-Paul Sartre, the philosopher. When you look into the absurdity of the world and all of the order and meaning and routine and expectations are just stripped away and you're left realizing that there actually is like everything around us is constructed and you know has a meaning but isn't really necessarily tethered to reality so you know you get jarred out of reality essentially with that early death and then you're free to do whatever you want after that i guess so yeah, it almost felt like it almost felt like we both realized this opportunity to just distance ourselves from everything that we had just experienced as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And that was just the way that we both at the same time, like our minds synchronized and that's just and that's just how we and that's how we decided to handle that. Mm-hmm. And y'all got to bond because that's a fantastic story and a fantastic moment that you'll never, uh, you know, lose between the two of you as well. Um, yeah. And I think that yeah. that makes the most effective funerals, I think, is when not only are, is it a space for you to say goodbye, but a space that allows people to get closer together. And I think that y'all took advantage of that beautifully. I feel like Irish funerals and wakes have that in common, that it's it's not not that they're sad, but they're more a celebration of the person's life as opposed to a lamentation of their death. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. That's, did, uh, do you, uh, I'm thinking back to my class now because I haven't taught it in like a year because I've been in uh, dissertation interim. Um, I remember going over Irish wakes and the drinking and the body on the table um, in the dining room like the older version of the wake before our modern one and how rowdy they got. That's one of the things I mentioned to my wife after the fact, like after that day and the, the pranks at fast food restaurants aside, but everything that we had gone through in terms of him passing away that morning to me helping carry him out of the house. I, and, and one of the observations I had, the overarching one was that it felt very Irish. It felt very traditional, very ritualistic. Like Mm -hmm. I will, I will carry, I, I, I used to walk him out of the house to his appointments. We used to walk out of the house together. He used to let me borrow his car when I was first visiting my wife. I used to come from Connecticut to Pennsylvania and I, I used to drive him to work and we used to walk out that door. We did that for almost a decade. And it was like, I will carry him out one last time. Like, it, it felt like a ritual. It felt very, very primal and very and very Irish. That's the word that I used to describe it to her. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. One of the things that reminds me of is there's a, uh, I don't think she has a podcast. She does have a YouTube channel. It's called, uh, her name is uh, Caitlin Doty. And she runs a channel called Ask a Mortician. And one of her, she's very uh, death positive. And so she teaches people to embrace death and be a part of death because there's a uh, institutionalization of death in our culture right now where sick people go to hospitals, 
coroners take care of the dead behind closed doors. Families aren't really involved in the actual dying process. And so she advocates for families to be uh, as intimately involved in the process as they possibly can. And, you know, one of the things is handling the body um, because that, you know, helps bring closure, bring people together. And it's a very healthy human behavior that we've kind of forgotten over the last hundred years. And so she's working really hard to bring that culture back, particularly with her funeral home, that she prioritizes families being involved in the entire process of, um, uh, you know, laying their loved one to rest, which I think is fantastic. It definitely is. And thinking about the experience that we had, I do realize that we had time to see the body and to, like you said, handle the body. And yes, it did, now that I'm looking back on it, in retrospect, provide a lot of closure that I don't know we would have gotten if he had passed away in a hospital while we weren't there or or you know any other way that we that we wouldn't have been so uh present for mm-hmm. that's fascinating yeah i know one of my favorite little historical tidbits about death is that in the victorian times um cemeteries were like public squares or carnival grounds and so cemeteries were where you went to socialize and where you went to have picnics after church and where you would go for festivals or carnivals or city events and things like that, that the dead were a very central part of city and town life because you never, you know, we're not at the cemetery um, and we keep pushing cemeteries further and further outside of city limits. And we no longer have that social space anymore where we both can commune with the living, but also commune with the dead while we are living. Speaking of cemeteries, I seem to remember in the past year or so, various stories in the news about proposals to reclaim land that's taken up by cemeteries, that's taken up by uh, by grave sites that are however many years old. Some, sometimes there's like a cutoff of anything older than 75 years, 100 years. Uh, reclaiming that land and using it for purposes not related to to death, not related to a cemetery. How ethical is that? And will that ever become the norm? Will there be, and, and, and maybe you have a view on this, maybe you don't, but I wonder if as somebody who has a, a vested interest in death, maybe you do. Will we ever see that become a regular practice? Will we ever get that land back? Should we ever get that land back? Hmm. Um, well, first of all, that sounds like the beginning of a horror film, um, where things go terribly (laughs) wrong. Um, (laughs) but it doesn't necessarily surprise me. There's several, and you know, death is like all cultural things. It's very different depending on the culture you're in, but there's a lot of, um, Eastern Asian cultures right now that are experimenting with like skyscraper mausoleums. There's some situations where you rent a plot So, like, the family can rent a plot for their loved one. They'll be there for five to ten years. And then they're exhumed and cremated and the family's given the ashes. So that way they have, like, a physical space to go to for, like, the first five to ten years of grieving. And so they put bodies on rotation through both the skyscraper uh, model as well as the rent-a-plot. So it's not unheard of to repurpose 
uh, cemeteries. Um, but usually when people do that, it's a concern with the amount of land available for cemeteries and for the dead. It's not necessarily like in this instance where it's like, all these dead people are taking up this property value and we need to build a parking lot. Um, so we're going to exhume them and, you know, cremate them, send them to their families and then pave it. So, you know, I don't quite, that's a little bit different. It's, I mean, it's definitely very American. But... I got to tell you, one of the first things I thought when it, like, when I heard one of these stories was the person who lodged that complaint must be a lot of fun at parties. Oh, man, you know it. <laughs> They're like, this, this cemetery Jesus is great. Let's Christ. pave it and put up storage facilities. Right. We Good can mine Lord. Bitcoin here. <laughs> <laughs> I think a Jamba Juice would look great here, don't you? Oh, man. Just Starbucks <laughs> on every corner. Good God. So, I mean, I think that's... If if we're repurposing cemeteries for profit, I think that's a little distasteful. Um, but if we're repurposing, repurposing cemeteries to be social spaces that still include the dead, or if we're concerned about you know, space for the dead and we go into a kind of like our rental plot cycle of bodies to cremation, then I'm more, I feel more positively about that. But if we're just taking away the very last remnants of our, con our physical connection to the dead, that seems, I don't know, I worry about that. Not necessarily that as the cause of something, but that as the symptom of our overall, uh, conceptualization and treatment of death if that is right. the thought that comes to mind i'm kind of worried about our overall concept of death as a culture i would tend to agree with you i think that when our hunger for commercial space and capitalism outgrows our respect for the dead no matter how long they've been dead that's probably a time to step back and reassess uh, yeah that's it <laughs> You know, how can, we, how can we turn a profit from these corpses? <laughs> right, right, right. Maybe we don't need an Aspen Dental here. I'm gonna, I want to bring this up at the meeting next week. Maybe we don't need to do that. Maybe not. There's plenty of space. I just moved to New Mexico. I promise. There's plenty right. of space. <laughs> Ridiculous. From, I did not hear I about that. That's wild. Yeah, and I, I wish. I, I wish I had a better research department, but this is just me in my closet. I, I don't remember exactly where these like where these occurred but i seem to remember that there were issues with like oh like we don't we don't have land for something we, maybe we should repurpose something i don't know but yeah i just I, i'm i'm glad that i'm talking to somebody who has a qualified opinion on these things a qualified official official <laughs> right, qualifications right, right. <laughs> so from a psychological standpoint and now this is I, I should clarify that I don't I don't write anything for this show. I just I I'm a naturally very curious person, and I just I love talking and asking about things and learning about things. Oh yeah. Um, from a psychological standpoint, is there a benefit to having a loved one cremated as opposed to buried? Um. Yes, but not in probably the way that you're thinking. Um, okay. Funerals and the funeral home industry are what's called a closed market so it's very monopolized and there's very little competition and it's very very hard to get upstarts in the funeral business and so with kind of a market climate like that you see prices skyrocket which is why funerals are very very expensive um and so when you opt for burial 
and uh, embalming and the casket and the ceremonies and everything like that, um, you're opting to pay nearly twice as much as a cremation. And so for people with lower income or working class or are kind of down on the monetary funds, because, you know, let's say that your loved one was battling cancer and y'all didn't have great health insurance. And so you're left with a lot of debt. Um, cremation can re- alleviate some of that financial stress um, and make the funeral a better place to be at and a more relaxing place to be at because you're not thinking about the dollar amount associated with the traditional funeral. So there is that benefit um, if you can alleviate that stress, that financial stress. But in terms of like people's personal beliefs or religious beliefs or if there's something like, you know, deeply primordial about human beings that there has to be a specific way to uh, inter the dead for closure, not necessarily. I think that from a personal standpoint, I would feel that I wouldn't want to burden the people who love me with the thought of having to physically go visit me, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I feel like in cremation, there's implicit this idea of closure, like we talked about earlier. Like this is like this is the end. I'm now I'm now part of the earth again. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about me. I'm all around you. Just have fun. Good luck. Don't you know? Don't hit your head. Oh yeah, no. I think if you frame it that way, absolutely. If you frame it in kind of the, we put your ashes in a box and it's in the closet somewhere. That's kind of bleak. Um, I think I would rather go visit a cemetery that's you know upkept and pretty. Um, that I can spend the day with a loved one than say like, well, time to pull grandma out of the box. Um, but if, you know, if you frame it in a way that like, I'm a part of nature, I'm returning to the soil. Um, we poured your ashes out in a place that was important to you, important to your family, important to your community. I think that is very, I think that's fantastic. Um, there's a town in Colorado. I don't remember. It's very close to me, actually. I need to figure it out. Uh, the town's name, but they have the only open air pyre for the community to burn their community members at um, out in the wow. Colorado wilderness. So there's nothing necessarily special about cremation, um, but I think that's very magical that, you know, if somebody dies in that small town, the whole community gets together and goes up to the pyre in the mountains and, you know, burns you and lets you be a part of the Rocky Mountains. I think that would be beautiful closure. That's amazing. Wow, I had never heard of that before. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. I'm going to, sorry for the clickety-clack, but I really do want to know where that's at. No, no, that's fine. One of the things I never realized, and feel free to do what you're doing. Um, one of the things I never realized until I was in the experience, when we picked up our father-in-law's or my father-in-law's ashes, I never realized how heavy the box would be. And that was one of the things they mentioned was people don't realize just how heavy the the cremains, the ashes are altogether. It was very, very striking. And that was another moment where it felt real. It was like, yep, that's that's you know, that's what this is. Mm-hmm. The town is called Crestone, Colorado. Crestone, Colorado. And they have a funeral wow. pyre. That is incredible. Mm-hmm. After we're done with this, I'm gonna I'm gonna find pictures. I wanna read I wanna read all about this. Oh, I'm fascinated yeah. with the process like like with these processes and with I and with the psychological aspect of death. And and you know, this thing that I went through, it was the first death 
I had ever experienced from such a close perspective. I, I haven't had any family members pass away yet, you know, knock on wood, mm-hmm. but it was it was very surreal. It was like it was like playing the game you see on TV. You know what I mean? Right. It was it was it was unbelievably surreal. That's kind of how teaching my first semester of the death or I guess it was my second semester of the death course. Was it the first or the second? I don't remember. But my uh during the duration during the early part of the semester my grandfather passed and that was like the very first like close relative who had died and so it was uh interesting to intellectualize my grieving process because i was lecturing about it actively but it was also very cool to uh use my experience as an example for my students as we're talking about concepts in the class as well and so it became very much a dialogue between me and the students because, like I said, that class attracts students who have already lost people in the recent past. And so, you know, we all kind of commiserated together through that particular semester. I imagine that's very healthy to funnel that energy through creativity, to turn that into into creative energy. Mm-hmm. And we built a little community out of it, too. You know, like the second function of a good funeral, you have to build your community and build those social bonds. So we shared something that semester that was very magical and I really appreciated it. I'm going to switch gears for a minute. Go for it. You mentioned blowjobs. Oh, yes, blowjobs. <laughs> <laughs> so is that an actual topic in your class? Yes. In, so... your, in your sexuality class, I should I should specify now that we've spent well, half an hour talking about the death class. You We're would on be a surprised. I do, have, I, I do have a lecture about funeral strippers, so the death and sex intersections are a little bit too uncomfortable for me sometimes. Well, I was going to ask that, too. Like are, 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 like, are there many intersections of, of those two topics? But tell me about some of the topics that you cover. Maybe some of the more uncomfortable ones, because you mentioned that there are some uncomfortable topics that that can that can come up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the most uncomfortable that we have. I mean, obviously, the sexual positions and sexual behavior portion of the class is uncomfortable for some people. Um, so is the body modifications. We talk about body modifications a little bit and kind of. Uh, sexual expectations of people's bodies and their genitals. And so we talk about kind of the dangers of, um, you know, enlarging, trying to enlarge uh, the penis, um, issues around labiaplasty, so trimming the labia minora of the vulva. We talk about piercings and tattoos and different ways that people, you know, maybe not normatively express their sexuality but you know kind of strike out a uniqueness for themselves so there's one picture i have of a uh, man who has a dragon tattoo on his pelvis and the his penis and the penis head is the neck and the head of the dragon and so we cover some of the more extreme things but when we get into stuff like you know expectations of what penis size should be and kind of the some of the grotesque ways that people try to, you know, enlarge their penises, that gets uncomfortable. Um, we Talking about gender also gets uncomfortable as well. We are in a very, uh, like I say, swampy, but a very up-in-the-air gender conversation right now, culturally. And so that one can get tense. But I think the overall, the whole class, because, you know, the the majority is heterosexual. And so you get a lot of heterosexual gender dynamics in the class, too. And so I get 
students breaking out into debates about who's worse at texting back men or women who's more inappropriate in dating apps men or women and so the students will end up like teaming up against each other and i'll have to play ref so they get a little bit more rowdy in that class than say the death class but you have to be thankful for that lightheartedness when presenting topics like the ones you mentioned. I, I imagine these debates are, are rather lighthearted. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's hilarious. Um, I don't think anybody's gotten their butt hurt. Um, they do get really intense. Like, they'll start, you know, because I really appreciate it. Because, you know, sometimes you teach a class and, like, the students are just there and they listen and they may take notes, but then they're on their phone. But in the sex class, like, those those kids show up ready to fight. That has to be a fun class. It's... And I, like, again, like, the psychological aspect of sex and of death, I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated by. Mm-hmm. What are some, I wonder if you could shed some light on maybe a couple of misconceptions that people may have about human sexuality. I mean, everybody, I feel like whenever any talk show or any podcast has a, a sex expert on the show, one of the questions is always, oh, does size really matter? And I feel like that's like an overused thing. And you can tell me if it does or not. But I, I, but I wonder if you could shed some light on some other misconceptions that people may have. Yeah, I mean, in terms of size, does it really matter? Actually, there's an interesting study that was done. This woman, this professor out in, I think she's in Arizona. Don't quote me on that. I don't remember. Um, she 3D printed a bunch of dildos of varying sizes and had her female participants come in and pick the boyfriend dick and the husband dick. And boyfriend dick oh. is slightly larger than husband dick. But they're both Is it really? Yes. But they're both within the margin of average. So average is ranges from like five to six inches is average. And so they were both within that uh, frame. So does size matter yeah does it matter no does it matter who your partner is yes so it is a little up in the air but the trend is boyfriend dick is bigger than husband dick i would have sworn to god husband dick would be bigger than boyfriend dick i would have i would have put money on that because i would have imagined that there is uh there's an implication of of status and of commitment and that i imagine that that is that is more attractive the idea of commitment and well and, and maybe that's another misconception is, i mean think of the physiology though the penis is like significantly on average is significantly longer than the depth of the vagina well that is true so you know do you want to get stuck with like a nine incher for the rest of your life that's a lot of work <laughs> It, it it is, isn't it? <laughs> it's great for a fling, but you know, twenty years out, I'm gonna be tired. Right. <laughs> tired of this shit. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I guess also, like when you talk about a husband dick, it's older and needs a little more, a little more patience. I, and you know, it's familiar. Um, right. So there is an aspect. Right. I think that's the one misconception about sex and death that people have that I could at least originally contribute to this conversation is that people make it way more metaphysical than it needs to be like the bigger the penis the more status someone has well actually the vagina is smaller than the penis and you know she's probably thinking in terms of like the longevity of her sex life so That's it's a little true. bit more embodied and grounded in reality than i think people and that, think it is and that may be true but i also feel like the fear 
that a man might have a small penis is at the core of a man's being. I feel like any, and and maybe I'm wrong on this too, but I feel like any guy at his core is self-conscious about the size of his dick. I mean, there is this idea of social comparison theory, which basically says that we're all insecure until we understand our social standing. And so as long as you have enough examples of people who are worse off than you are, then you're going to be self-esteem-wise fine. So I'm sure that extends to penis size. Um, But, you know, how often are, uh, you know, the average straight man in a homoerotic situation where he's seeing a lot of penises around him? Uh, If the only examples of other men's penises you're getting are on porn then I would imagine that would exacerbate your insecurity about your penis size. But, you know, if you're in sports, you're in the locker room, you see a variety um, of penises of all shapes and sizes, and you're like, oh, I'm actually doing pretty good. Or, oh, at least I'm not that guy. Or, oh, I wish I was that guy, but I'm still doing better than half these other guys. Then I'm sure your self-esteem is going to be just fine. Is there such a thing as pornography-induced erectile dysfunction? Um, that's a tough question, and this kind of goes back to my hesitancy to answer clinical questions, because I'm not a clinical psychologist. Um, okay. So I don't want to leave the impression that I'm an expert on the clinical aspects of human sexuality. I mostly stay within the normative range, because, you know, normal people are absolutely crazy. I don't need to go one step further. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So I, there, is, there is some evidence for pornography-induced erectile dysfunction. Um, it's more complicated than just watch pornography, you know, not be able to get erect again. Um, there are a lot of other factors that are involved in it. And it also depends on how you're using pornography. Because some studies, like, you know, you get into, like, pornography addiction or, you know, stress and... Uh, you know, self-esteem issues related to pornography. And there's a lot of different uh, ways to, you know, consume pornography that don't come with those negative side effects. It's kind of like violence in video games. Like, yes, there's a correlation, but also if you're playing co-op with your friends on Call of Duty, you don't see the same increase in interpersonal violence as you do just violent video games in general. So be wary when you see headlines that are like porn is causing erectile dysfunction or porn addicts are everywhere because the story is a lot more complicated than just porn is bad causes bad things stay away right yeah and and i i have i have very limited knowledge of this problem again knock on wood uh (laughs) but um (laughs) <laughs> but I, from what I've read and understood about it, because again, I'm 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 fascinated with this side of things. Um, there are a lot more psychological circumstances that can contribute to erectile dysfunction more than physical. I mean, if it's a physical thing, you'll probably know about it, whether it's diabetes or heart disease or obesity. Mm-hmm. But it, but but it's it's almost, uh, and I hate to attribute odds to it but it's almost much more likely that it's a it's a it's a uh, it's a psychological block there mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah no it absolutely does i would also throw antidepressants in there too they will uh, mess up your penis um right. but right. uh interpersonally oh yeah absolutely if you're you know 
anxious around women, anxious about how you perform in bed. If you spend too much time on like, you know, I'm going to call it man centric Reddit boards about what real women want and mm-hmm. they don't ask real women what they want. Um, right. You're likely to have some issues in that interaction. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing how there are so many men who know what women want and yet they've never asked a woman what they want? Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah. And, you know, and then it causes all sorts of problems because then they get upset because what they're doing is not right because their partner isn't happy because they didn't ask their partner and then their sex is terrible and then they blame the woman and then they feel bad about themselves and then they go ragey on the internet. Um, Our old friend, the male ego. Yeah, but then all you have all the other guys who are reading his diatribes and thinking it's, you know, the truth. And then that's making them insecure and setting up, you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy of bad sex, really. So, no, absolutely. Right. The psychology, the social aspect of it, definitely a major contributor. Um, and, you know, that could be one of the relationships between porn and erectile dysfunction is that are you anxious about having that intimate interaction with another human? So you, you know, divert and go to porn. Well, now I'm in a situation with another human that I haven't, you know, psychologically grappled with. And so now my body won't perform well because, you know, our psychology is our body. It's not just locked in our brain. And so, you know, that self-esteem, that anxiety, that nervousness just goes all over and messes up your whole situation. It may be an oversimplification of the solution, but I feel like there really is something to just not stressing about it. Stop mm-hmm. worrying about it so much. That's, I mean, really, though, like, that's kind of the thing that it's wild about the Internet is that on one hand, you get people who are more neurotic than ever about sex. But on the other hand, there's so many examples of how sex is different for every single person that you would think that people would open themselves up more and just, you know, do what they wanted to do and feel that freedom to do what they wanted to do because the cultural norms and expectations have essentially broken down around sexuality over the last 10 years. That is true. And that could be attributed to the rise of dating apps and more casual sex and maybe even the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I will say though, people aren't having more sex though. They're just talking about it a lot. Um, Millennials are the most undersexed generation even baby boomers were having more sex than millennials were. Well, it's fun to talk. It's fun to talk about sex. Mm-hmm. No, it absolutely is. And I absolutely love reading people's thoughts on it. But there is an underlying issue of millennials not actually getting to have sex. They're just talking about it online quite a bit. Forgive me if this is an insensitive question, but your students... How often are you hit on by your students in your sexuality class? Oh, Lord. I have no idea. I'm like the epitome of the airheaded academic who's completely oblivious to social cues. So if they have been hitting on me, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) No idea. What a a beautifully safe answer that was. (laughs) Yeah, but also my – I'm very – I don't know. I've been told I'm very intimidating in class too. Because I'm, you know, I'm not like super tall, but, you know, I'm around six foot and I project in large classrooms and, you know, I put people under microscopes and their thoughts about death and sex. So, you know, I feel like I probably breed a little bit of uh, insecurity in my classes sometimes. So I don't know if anybody's brave enough to try to flirt with me. And if they did, I don't know if I would notice. 
Other than the debates that you mentioned earlier, any genuinely lighthearted moments you can think of that maybe happened recently in a class? In a class? Well, I have been out of teaching. Well, actually, you know what? I did do some teaching for the beginning of the last term. And one of the things that I implemented, so I taught an intro to psychology class, and then I taught uh, two research design classes. And the research design classes are so much fun because I hosted online office hours through Zoom. And so students would come on and we would just talk about their research projects. And so one of the things in all of my classes, whether it's the death class or the sexuality class or the intro to psych classes, I always make my students carve out their own area of research and study that's personal to them that they are interested in within the class structure. So that way they're not just getting, you know, like spoon fed, this is what the textbook says, or this is what the lecture is about. They actually get to be involved in creating knowledge too. And so that's one of the things I love about teaching is those one-on-one interactions with students where we talk about the, the literature that they're reading, the kind of study they want to run questions about, you know, we had actually, uh, what was it in the fall? I had two groups, so in the sex class, I separate them out into topic groups, so like they're kind of like teams, but they're not group projects per se, because they're still individually graded, because I'm not going to let anybody like, you know, screw over a group because they're being lazy. Um, Thank you for that. Thank you for your service. Oh, absolutely. I have been screwed by so many teachers who stuck me in a group. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Why are we doing four like, lazy jerk offs and me? Yeah, no, like you're like, you need to be in a group so you learn to work with other people, but then you get burned every time. So, what did you learn yeah. about working with other people? Don't do it. So, right, <laughs> which is a valuable lesson sometimes in and of itself. It is, but if you're not tethered to the lazy jerk off, it's working with a group and actually learning how to work with a group is really important. I agree with you, just don't punish right. people for it, right? Um, but we had two groups and they both wanted to do topics on uh sex technology cybersexuality, sex technology and so we had the hardware group and then we had the software group and so the hardware group did things like the uh bluetooth wi-fi uh dildo flashlight combos uh have you heard of those i have is it is it um i saw one that that has a holder for your phone Mm-hmm. And it's and it's all it's all sort of interconnected and, and it's supposed to simulate like a very point of view kind of experience. Yeah. So you essentially so it's I mean, they're for heterosexual partners. Um, I mean, I guess if you're a, a gay male couple, you could use this as well. Um, but it's a flashlight and a dildo and they mimic each other's motions as you use them. And so you and your partner, let's say your wife's on a business trip away um, out of the city She's got the dildo, you've got the flashlight, y'all call each other up on the phone, hook up your uh, toys, and then y'all's movements correspond with each other. So it makes the intimacy across distances very, very personal. Um, and so we had... That's really fucking cool. Yeah, no, it's way That's cool. really cool. I think I think maybe the thing that I saw is, is, is way below what you're talking about. This is incredible. I had no idea that that technology existed. Mm-hmm. So we had the hardware group who focused on toys like that, like new innovations and in, uh, toys. And then we had the software group who did everything like dating apps and uh, chat simulators and uh, OnlyFans, etc. And so watching those two, because they kind of... They were both the t- two groups that had the most high power students in them. 
And so they kind of competed against each other. And by the end of the semester, like both of their projects were fantastic. And I got to learn. And that's the best kind of class that I teach is when I'm not the one who's just teaching. Like the students are also teaching me with their research. So their little that's just that, competition. Yeah, that's the sign of a good teacher. That's your, uh, there's always room to learn. Mm-hmm. So I take all of their projects and I'm like, you just taught, you just expanded the class for next semester. I'm going to move this over to the next group of students. The next group of students is going to make content. Um, teach me something new. I'll integrate the new things that I learned into the next one. I think the first one I did, I had a group that taught me all about asexuality and everything I need to know about it. So it becomes a learning community. So I do the grunt work, cover all the basics, facilitate the classroom, and then they get to dive into projects that are very personal and interesting to them. And I always recommend, so one of the things I'm doing, and I need to work more on this, which I think is going to be a goal for next summer too, but I put together a summer writing group dedicated to publishing term papers. Because when you're in college, you write all of these research-heavy papers that just go into your folder and die. And you get no credit beyond the grade that you got in the class. But some of them are actually really interesting. And you got to flesh out a lot of really cool ideas. And so I've been inviting currently colleagues and old students to join me on a Zoom call once a week this summer, and we're just going through our old term papers, seeing what we can flip into publications. Um, but That's I, a great idea. Yeah. So the idea for the sex and the death class is when you're done with that project, if you want to, you can turn around and flip that into a publication when you're done with the class. That is fascinating. Yeah, and it's true that once you get a grade for a paper, I mean, think about how much work goes into a term paper. Mm-hmm. I remember writing a 30-page paper in my philosophy class, and I thought that was the hardest thing I had ever written. And I got my grade, and I'll be damned if I remember what it was about today, but I remember how hard I worked on it. And I would I would love to see that again. I'm sure that there is, similarly, lots of value in the things that students write beyond the grade. Oh, absolutely. Students are brilliant because they're undisciplined. Like, particularly undergrads, because, you know, you go to undergrad to be disciplined. You know, you're in psychology to be a part of the discipline of psychology. But while you're undisciplined, your ideas are all over the place. And you're way more creative. And you see way more possibilities. And you're way more innovative than, say, like, your typical grad student or professor who's, like, you know, disciplined and, you know, got their blinders on. So fostering that creativity and getting that creativity out there for other people to read very very important so that's something that i need to work i've laid the groundwork for that to happen now i need to actually like push my students into doing that or at least the students who are interested in doing that obviously if you know a student doesn't really care they need the grade they need the credit they've got bigger and better plans beyond academics then i'm not going to force them to go through the peer review process that'd be awful um but for those who are interested i need to make a pathway for uh, that process to be easier and I can mentor them through that because their projects at the end of the semester are fantastic and they deserve more recognition than a grade. You mentioned earlier some of the some of the intersections between sex and death mm-hmm. and, and one of the first possible intersections that I think of is the idea of spirituality because sex, like death, can be a very spiritual 
experience mm -hmm. and a very spiritual concept have roots in a lot of different a lot of different belief systems how important is spirituality to you as a person as somebody who maintains an interest in both of these topics is that a big part of your life is it not a part of your life at all does it guide the way you think about any of these things um it's a weird question to ask i mean not a weird not a weird question to ask on your end but a weird question for me to answer um because i'm fine i'm kind of in a weird space where i grew up very uh fundamentalist christian and so a lot of my adult life up to this point has been kind of unpacking a lot of the stuff that didn't really fit me um and fit my life uh so you know for example i just got married to my husband and <laughs> my old church would be mortified if they knew um so, you know, there's a lot of... How long ago? How long ago were you married? Uh, we got married uh, like three weeks ago, two weeks ago. Oh, my God. Congratulations. Thank you. That is so new. Yeah, no, it's very... Uh, this is the season for new. Um, moved to New Mexico, got a job, graduating, got married. It's zero to adult life right now. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. I am so happy for you. How long were you with him before you got married? Uh, three years, three and a half years. That's long enough, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was with my wife for five years before we got married, mm -hmm. and we've been married for four now. I, yeah. Wow, that's so great. Okay, anyway, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to derail you. I just, I, I, you said you just got married, and I was hoping it was brand new so I could express my congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Of course. Um. So, you know, all that to say is that my old spiritual life would have just, you know, been set ablaze with that information about myself. And so I went a long while with kind of this, like, Lovecraftian atheism, or I guess theism, where it's kind of like, if something's out there, then it doesn't care about me, and if it knew about me, it would be just, you know, disregard, and if I knew about it, I would go insane and die, because the universe is vast and horrifying. Um, but there is a, not to sound cold, but there is a utility to spirituality, um, and I think this relates to death and sex very well, that it frames and contextualizes our lives and our social spheres and the things that happen to us in a way that we can psychologically deal with stuff, um, and be healthy. So, you know, one of the things that pops up in the literature quite a bit is that religious people are more happy. They just are. And they have the benefit of having a framework to rationalize and understand and contextualize the world in a way that my, you know, Lovecraftian theism did not. And so when COVID hit, I was kind of spiritually unprepared for that. Um, because, you know, Cthulhu awakened. And, you know, that doesn't really prepare you for that. Uh, <laughs> um, and so I started dabbling in uh, some kind of some ideas i started you know i'm an academic so i started very intellectually just kind of looking into the history of uh folklore and folk paganism and how witchcraft operates within different you know geographic and cultural contexts and so you know getting into that literature and reading about people's experiences getting into paganism was really helpful and kind of centering and grounding myself in the world like the physical world and the physical domain was, 
I think the most beneficial thing after COVID. Um, I'd already been reading tarot cards for like 10 years. And so I kind of knew what I was doing with them. And so I just kind of took the next step from just like reading cards, to actually making it a ritual and ritualizing the process to, you know, give myself a sense of time and space and framing and context that, you know, Lovecraft didn't prepare me for. Tarot cards. Do you know I have never gotten a tarot reading? I've always been fascinated by it, but that's never something I've had an experience with. You, depending on who reads it, you get a different experience because people treat them very... It's a very versatile tool. Um, so like me being, you know, my edgy atheist was able to read tarot cards and just like, oh, this is cool. This is, you know, fun. I'll read some tarot cards. And then when it transitioned into a more ritualistic thing became very much more personal and spiritual and I think important. Um, obviously, well, I don't, I mean, that's not obvious cause you don't know me and your listeners don't know me. Um, but, uh, I don't like believe that the dead people, you know, move the cards around and select the cards for me to read. Um, they're very interesting, essentially kind of the way that I frame them. And I talked about this a little bit on my podcast recently, um, is that the, tarot is essentially just a deck of memes if that makes sense so every okay every card is a meme and it relays information that everyone has experienced universally and so there is not a card on there that you cannot relate to and so the way the tarot works is that when you lay out the cards you specify what each placement of the card means so like I'm having this anxiety. What's going on in my personal life? Like my social life? What's going on in my work life? What's going on in my financial life? What's going on in my romantic life? And so you designate a spot. And when you put a card there, you're putting a meme within the context of that domain of life. And so that meaning of the card then becomes examples and connects things that you probably would not have already connected. So you know, say that you're having, you can't sleep, you're having anxiety. What's the cause of this anxiety? Well, the cards aren't going to literally tell you what the cause is, but it will remind you, hey, your finances are very important to consider in your overall mental health, because it'll show you a bunch of coin cards, for example, in the context of a mental health reading. And you'll go, oh, that's right. I'm not crazy. I'm poor, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Right. It sounds like it almost enables you to create the connections yourself rather than lead you directly to the water and make you drink. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So that's why it's helpful for me, at least, and why I've really enjoyed it. And also the art's amazing. There's like millions of tarot card decks out there. And so, of course, I have my Lovecraft deck, um, but I also have the traditional one and they're just fun and they're really pretty and I really appreciate the art of them as well. So and they come with their own little I've... tints. So, like, you get a little bit of a different reading depending on the deck you use, too. I think that's why I, I had been fascinated with them, too, because the art is beautiful. I don't know if you're familiar with this. You may be, but you may not be. You're in Texas, and I feel like a lot of people may play this in Texas. But there's a game called, uh, I think it's called Loteria, uh... where it's almost like it, it's almost like bingo, but it it, it has very it has very uh mexican latin roots is it the um, uno no so it's like so you get a four by four card and each square on the card looks like a card in a tarot deck and there are all these different characters and different and different 
uh, imagery and different oh, symbols. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember. Right, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, 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 and I, I had always been fascinated with that game, and I, I maybe for the same reason, I had always been fascinated with just the imagery on tarot cards and just and just the general aesthetic of that design. I always thought it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I think they operate similarly, just, you know, different cultural contexts. I haven't really played with those cards at all. I pretty much stay in my tarot lane. Um, I'm not terribly adventurous, but that's what drew me to him initially. There was kind of like this rebellious, like, ha ha ha, you know, I'm leaving the church and reading demon cards kind of rebellion there too. Um, right. So edgy. Yeah. So edgy. <laughs> I bought my cards off, uh, what is it? Etsy. I'm so edgy. Right. Stop being so edgy. You're scaring the children. Oh man. So, <laughs> and then it turned into something way more important to me. Um, and so it's kind of traveled with me through the duration of my adult life. Um, and I think that's kind of, you know, to get back to your question about sex and death and framing that, um, you know, I see sex and death as two sides of the same coin. Um, you know, they're very interrelated for me, not in kind of like a, not in a necrophiliac kind of way, but you know, that is one example of how they're interrelated. Um, but just the idea of birth and rebirth and death and creation and destruction like that binary that just reappears in our lives over and over again you know metaphysically i think sex and death really um you know consolidate that um in a way that's helps contextualize the the experiences we have you know one of the things you know speaking about memes the two oldest memes because you know memes have been around longer than the internet are oh sure uh Penis Graffiti and Memento Mori are the two oldest memes. A Memento Mori meaning um, all time is fleeting? Yeah, we all die, all time is fleeting. Yeah. yeah. So essentially it's, you know, dick pics and YOLO. Um, <laughs> right. But those are the oldest <laughs> uh, memes. And so these these two themes of sex and death have followed humanity forever. Um, and, you know, that's kind of our biggest questions and our biggest anxieties around, you know, procreation and destruction. How well do you have to know somebody in order to give them a tarot reading? Like if I asked you to give me a tarot reading, could you do it? I mean, I could do it. I don't usually do it with strangers. Um, or okay. like people I don't, but I have, um, before I could definitely give you one. Um, let's, let's do it. It'll be my first one ever. Oh, cool. Yeah. Let me, Let's do let me, it. Okay. Let me grab All right, what do you need from me? Do you need anything? Uh, think about what you want to ask me about, and let me grab a deck real quick. Okay. Can you hear me while you look for a deck? No, you can't. Okay. I wonder what I would ask. See, I think when he comes back, I'm going to ask what other people typically ask for, because I have 0% knowledge of any of this. Jenna, I'm sorry. I have returned. Okay. So what do people typically ask in a tarot reading? I, I, I am 0% initiated into that. Um, I mean, for me personally, just because of the educational context that I'm in. So like when I'm reading tarot cards for fellow grad students, it's usually around like, how's the semester going to go? I've got this project coming up. What do I need to focus on? I've got this interview. What are some qualities that I need to embody in that interview? So it's very work-related. 
um, popularly, like in the popular culture, um, love readings, romantic relationship readings are very popular. Um, that's, you know, that's how psychics and mediums make a killing is on the, uh, emotions of love and romance. Um, but it's really up to you. I think the only thing, the, the only limitation is, is you can't really ask a yes or no question. It has to be open-ended. Okay. Hmm. So with those guidelines in place, I think I might ask. Hmm. I think I would ask something relating to work. Okay. Not just work, but, you know, from a professional standpoint, from the standpoint of this thing that I'm doing right now, this podcast, um, I think I would want to know how close to the right path am I? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Am I doing the things that I want to do in the right order so that I achieve success in them? But that's a yes or no question. Yeah. How about what are some what are some areas within your podcasting that you need to put some investment into in order to get the outcomes that you want? And so I'll, I think the Mm-hmm. So I'll draw like three cards for you. We'll have three memes and then uh, you can see how they kind of intersect. So maybe like the first one can be for, you know, the social aspect. Like what do you, how does your podcast uh, embed within your social environment? Maybe a financial, you know, business point of view. What do you need to do from that standpoint? And then maybe from a personal emotional because, you know, success isn't just, you know, making the money. It's also fulfilling for you to do. Sure. Yeah, sounds great. Sounds great. Cool. All right. Let's do it. Do you have your... Do, can you see me? Um, I can't. If I put my laptop... Yes, I can see you. If I turn mine on, you can't see me because it's very... I, I do this in the dark. Oh, you're all good. So I'll, I'll leave mine off, but I can see you. I just wanted to let you know that I'm using the OG design for the tarot for you since it's your first nice. time. Nice. And this is just a note for everybody listening at home. This is the first time I've ever seen a guest while I'm talking to them for this show. Ah, ha, ha. So many firsts. So many firsts. We're making history. We're making history, Tom. All right. So let's see. First card, how to achieve success with your podcast in the social. How does your podcast deal with the social domain? Ah, Page of Cups. There you go. Okay, the Page of Cups. Yes, Page of Cups. So the Page of Cups is a highly emotional card. He's kind of a romantic. Um, so if this were a love reading, for example, I'd be like, oh, hey, Prince Charming's coming. But since we're talking about podcasts and not your romantic partner, um, this is definitely going to be a... You need to up... Your charming self is enough, essentially. That there is a aspect to the podcast that... And I think you really hit on this and from at least the episodes that I've listened to where it's very unscripted. It's, you know, strangers like, you know, boats passing in the middle of the night, never to meet again kind of thing. And so you get this glimpse and it's a very charming glimpse of people's lives and how they interact with each other. And so I think embodying that and bringing that forward and not losing that aspect of the podcast, I think is important. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So cool. Very emotional, very charming. 
got to keep that lightheartedness and provide that, you know, pizzazz. Let's see. Ah, so for business, we've got the Eight of Pentacles. Okay, this is the second card. The Eight of Pentacles. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So the Eight of Pentacles is hard work that pays off. And so it does not pay off immediately. It does not pay off even in some people's long-term plans that this is going to be a very slow, gratuitous process. And so I think this actually reminds me of some of the research I was reading that podcasts like actually get their kickoff like 18 months in. Um, And so the idea of the business end of this is that you need to be prepared for the long haul and that this is a craft that you need to hone, which is something you already know, I'm sure. It, it, I, it, it's easy to forget it sometimes, and it's easy to wonder the hell's taking so long. But mm-hmm. yeah. Nope, this is a project that is supposed to be long. Cool. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then personally, ah, we have strength. 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 So it is, okay. it is what it says, that this is something that is empowering for you, that, you know, this is podcasting came out of us negative situation that you needed to find your voice again and embody what you know you believed and what you you know value and that you know with the strength card also it also relates to the astrological sign of leo so leadership and you know being out there and being seen and being heard and so the podcast personally for you is very important in order to be seen and to be heard and that is why it's personally fulfilling fascinating Mm -hmm. wow very cool so thank you for doing this i really appreciate that yeah absolutely so i'm telling you this is an experience i can cross off the list now i've I've, i'm telling you i've always been fascinated and i have a friend who listens to every episode of this show who is fascinated with it as well and i owe her an apology for never getting into this to that degree but this is really 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 interesting yeah no i'm glad i'm glad it resonates honestly because you know like i said it's a deck of memes so generally it always works but sometimes you know you never know um right sometimes it comes back and it's like i don't know you figure it out (laughs) yeah yeah well it's, it's just interesting how how sometimes inspiration and 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 encouragement can come from can come from anywhere right mm-hmm. no absolutely that, and this is why i do the tarot like it's not like a mumbo jumbo like ooh, the dead people are moving the cards it's kind of like a okay like for this one for example like you know podcasting is important because you can be seen and heard it's a long game it's something that you have to build a relationship with the people around you and it's like yes i'm on the right path You know, same thing if I'm asking questions about school or work or my classes or anything like that. It's not so much that the cards divine the future for me. It's just a reflective tool. Not to knock anybody who do use it for divining, by the way, because people do take it very seriously and spiritually. I just personally don't. Just as a disclaimer, if there's a tarot reader who, you know, communes with their god or goddess through tarot cards, I'm not negating that whatsoever. Um, That's just how I use it. So, Thomas, I ask this question of everybody who participates in this show because participation in this show is a choice, as you know. You saw the thing on Reddit. I asked for people just to provide basic information, what their name is, where they're from, what they do. And based on that, 
I'm having conversations with all these people. Now, you're part of that list of people. What made you want to say yes and go on this journey and do this thing? Um, honestly, I was just embracing spontaneity. I saw your ad and I was like, that sounds like fun. I can go talk to a stranger for an hour or so. And so I signed up. Um, you know, I'd been, like I said, I've been dabbling in podcasts for a while. Um, very limited experience on other people's shows and being a guest. So like I was kind of feeling self-conscious about having people on my podcast. Not that I was, you know, mistreating them in any way, but just kind of, I wanted to be able to empathize with being on the other side of the Zoom call, essentially. And so that's why I was already on the Reddit thread looking at being a guest and then I saw yours and I was like this sounds like it's going to be completely random and high risk high reward let's embrace some spontaneity and do it I think that's true because I think this is probably in 70 episodes this is the first time the death of my father-in-law and blowjobs have been mentioned in the same episode (laughs) welcome to my (laughs) magical world (laughs) I love it. I love it. Thomas, this has been such a great conversation. I I feel like I feel like and this happens I I wouldn't say it happens with every conversation, but it happens with a very precious select few of them. I feel like I am coming away having been enriched by the things that you've told me and the thing and and the experience that we've had. Thank you so, so much. So I'm really appreciative that you did the thing. I'm so glad we're not strangers anymore. This has been Really a lot of fun talking to you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. I've really enjoyed it. It is my pleasure. Good luck with everything. Good luck with your research. And stay safe. And I hope years and years and years of wedded happiness to you. Thank you so much. I hope you have a good one. You too. Thank you, Thomas. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Stranger Than Christian is produced by me, Christian Carrion, from my studio in Lancaster City, Pennsylvania. New episodes premiere every Saturday on all major streaming services and at StrangerThanChristian.com. Follow me on Twitter at StrangerThanC and follow me on Instagram at StrangerThanChristian. If you enjoy the shows, support me on Patreon. Not only will you be supporting unedited, honest conversation, but you'll also receive lots of perks and bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash stranger than Christian to give your support. Until next week, thank you so much for tuning in to Stranger Than Christian, part of the Apocalypse Podcast Network. I'm Christian Carrion. Good night. Stranger Than Christian is a Fat Paulie's Bagels production. Thanks for listening to the Apocalypse Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, go to apocalypsepodcastnetwork.com. And remember, every time you support one of our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast you just heard. Hey everyone, thanks for listening today. Oh my god, what a fun conversation I had with Thomas.
I, I never asked if you wanted me to call him Thomas or Tom. You know, it's funny. He mentioned tarot, uh, him being able to read tarot, as one of the interesting facts or whatever about him on the uh, on the form that everybody fills out. And my wife grew up in a very Christian household as well, and she was always told that shit like that's scary and to stay away from it. So... I there was a little bit of trepidation on my part in participating in that because I didn't want to make my wife uncomfortable. I, I would hate for her to hear later that like I did something that she might find scary, but I think it really contributed to the show and I think she'll understand. Anyway, yeah, I'm just like that was just so great. We touched on a lot of things that I don't think we've ever touched on on this show before, but from a personal well, no. I hate to say from a personal standpoint. That sounds like I'm at a meeting. Look, I'm going to tell you about me since I have a minute. Um, everything's going great. Marriage is great. Finances are okay. Starting a new job this week. Back in hospitality. I'm the front desk manager of one of the hotels over here again. And I'm really excited about it. Other than this, hotel shit is really the one thing I do better than anything else. So... It's nice to be back where I belong. It's been a year of, like, trying to find a job that just, that fits, you know? So, from that point of view, everything is great. Um, my anxiety is, like, a 9 out of 10 right now. I'm waiting for an email back from this museum. I mentioned it last week, but the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York is opening a game show archive, and I know a few people involved with it, so I sent an email wondering if I can provide this service to the thing that they're doing, um, because I think that there are a lot of stories to tell, and I think there are a lot of um, interesting people in the world of game shows that I could definitely talk to. I have an encyclopedic knowledge of all this stuff. And they had a meeting about it today. Well, about many things. I think I, I came up in the meeting. And that was seven hours ago. And I want to know. Just tell me if you're going to use me or not. I, just let me know. Just let me, just let me sleep well. I'm drooling. I'm using the mic built into my, into my laptop. For these little, for, for these little blips. So. I apologize if you can hear a, all the clicking and shit in my mouth so anyway yeah i really hope you enjoyed this thank you for listening um and this just goes to show you it is always worth checking the end of the tape good night everybody